If you would bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to open Genesis to Genesis 37 together. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the time that we have here to gather together as your people. We thank you for your word and that you tell us that it is eternal and it is life-giving, that you create and you recreate through your word, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you've uh, protected it for us, you've kept it for us, that we can hear from you directly as we open your word this morning. We confess that we cannot do this without you. So we ask that you would come and that you would be our teacher, that you would be our guide, you would be the one that, that shows us how this applies to our hearts and our minds, that you would draw us closer to you this morning as we spend time in your word. We thank you that you promise that, that you do that, that you work in and through us, you work through the preaching of your word, through the uh, Holy Spirit guiding and leading us, and we pray that you would do that this morning. Uh, we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I was thinking about uh, playing different sports growing up. I don't know how many of you played sports growing up at different times, but uh, oftentimes in sports, when, you, when you're learning a new sport or you're beginning to, to figure out how to play it or whatever, and you begin to play organized for the first time, you end up start doing, to start to do drills, different drills that kind of have broken apart pieces of the sport that you're playing to help teach it to you. So, so me, I was always a big basketball player. Uh, I played basketball growing up and then coached it and loved basketball. And one of the things that you do in basketball always, uh, a great example is if you've ever seen the movie Hoosiers, right? Most people have seen at least or heard of the movie. It's about a basketball team in the 50s that won a state championship from a tiny little school. And they get a brand new coach who comes in in the first practice. He says, we're going to change how we do everything. Typical sports movie. And he says, get rid of the balls. We don't need any basketballs. We're going to do fundamentals. And so he gets them all down in their defensive position and they learn how to move their feet and to slide. And if you've ever seen the movie, they do that. And of course, they show a montage of everybody working out hard and getting better and all that kind of stuff. But one of the kids finally says, coach, when are we ever going to get to shoot? And he's like, oh, we don't need to shoot. We got to learn this first. And that's the way it is sometimes in sports. You have to learn the very basics before you can actually get to the point that you put all that together to play the sport. But the truth is, in those moments of doing just the drills, especially when you're first learning a sport and you don't really understand how all this goes together, it's terrible. There's nothing fun about going out and just getting broken down into this thing and doing these slides until you're exhausted and your legs hurt and all that stuff. And you're kind of like, if you don't see how it fits, it's just frustrating. Uh, you can very quickly go, this stinks. Like I've coached little kids and you start to teach them some of those things and they just don't get it all. And they look at you like, why are we, what are we doing? Like, this is terrible. And so when you're right in the midst of that, right in the middle of that, it can be very difficult because you don't see the whole of how it fits. As you grow up and you get older and you learn how those skills fit into you being better then you're maybe more likely or willing to do those things and grow in it. But when you don't know in your middle of it, it's really, really hard. It's difficult in those. And so I, I start there and I mentioned that and I was thinking even of that scenes from Hoosiers. I'm really going to date myself now. I'm using Hoosiers and Karate Kid, right? Have you ever seen Karate Kid? Right. When he teaches Daniel how to do karate and he makes him wax on and wax off with the car and then he has to paint the fence. Remember that? And he gets so mad and he goes, what is, what is we even doing? And he's like, then all of a sudden the magic happens and it's like and he starts doing karate, which really doesn't make any sense. There's no way you learn karate from learning how to wax a car. But anyway, but all of a sudden he, he understands like, ah, now I see what's happening. But he's really annoyed when he's just waxing the car for hours on end, like he doesn't get it. 
And so my point in saying all that, just even kind of jokingly, but saying that as we step into Genesis 37, we're going to look at a chapter in the Bible where God's at work and he's doing some things and you don't see it at all. Nobody sees it at this moment. We're going to start the life of Joseph as we're working through our uh, Genesis. And what we see in this passage with Joseph is there's a lot of hardships. There's a lot of difficult times. I make the joke about sports and learning in those different ways. But, but the truth is, you know this. You know very well in your own life that there are times when things are really, really difficult. There are things that press in in your life and you're seeking to trust God and to ask him. And what are you doing right now? And you don't see it. It doesn't seem like he's working. In fact, sometimes we get pushed to the point where we kind of throw our hands up and go, what in the world, God, are you doing here? I don't see it at all. I don't know what you're teaching me. I don't know what's going on. And it's kind of like that when you're doing a drill and nobody's shown you exactly how it pertains. It can be very frustrating and very hard. And we're going to look at Joseph's life over the next few weeks in Genesis. But today we're just going to look at chapter 37. And you get to the end of chapter 37 and everything's a mess. It's pretty much a disaster all the way around, and you don't see how it's playing out. If you can put yourself in their shoes as you look at the story and you see it in those moments, what you'll see is you don't understand what God's doing. You don't see how he's working, and it can be really difficult in those times. And passages like this can be hard to read. They can raise more questions than they answer. But that's the truth of what our lives look like a lot of times. I think we could go around the room and everybody could share at different times where they felt that way. Or, or maybe you come today and you feel like that today. You know, I don't know how this all works. I don't know how God's using this right now. And it can be very hard. And so I want us to look at Genesis chapter 37. And this is the way I want us to look at it. As we look through the story and what's happening, the first thing I want you to consider is that everybody in the story that we see, everybody that's involved, are broken, sinful people. We could expand that to say everybody in the room is broken, sinful people. That's, that's all of us. And we see that clearly in the story. And the second thing that comes from that is there's all kinds of mess in this world because of that. Because we're sinful people. But the second thing I want us to see as we look at the story is that God's work in the mess. Even though we're broken, sinful people, even though that produces all sorts of mess in the world we live in, God's at work in it. And then the last thing we're consider is that God graciously uses it all. God graciously uses all of that stuff as we go through it. So let's start with just the beginning. That as people were broken, sinful people, and that's certainly what we see in our story. And so start with verse 1 in Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Let me just remind you, Jacob is Abraham's grandson. We've been following his family all the way through as we've been looking. Uh, God renames him Israel. So we will use Jacob and Israel synonymously. Don't let that throw you. But that's who we're talking about here. This is God's chosen people that he says, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. And here's what their family looks like. So Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he'd made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And they could not speak peacefully to him. But Joseph had a dream. 
And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And so I want you just to consider as we look at this from the very beginning. Remember, this is God's chosen people that he's going to bring this blessing throughout the world that he gave to Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob. And here's his sons. And just as we read that, just those first eight verses, how would you characterize this family? Yeah, it's it's a disaster. There's there's jealousy, there's hatred, there's frustration, there's all sorts of things rolling through there. It's it's a mess. This is supposed to be God's chosen people that he's doing this great thing through. And you read this and you go, they're a disaster. I mean, you can start to look and just work your way through. First, you start with Jacob, the father. Israel, God's chosen one, the one that wrestled with God. And he changed his name and he's doing these great things and I'm going to use you. And what it tells us about Jacob is that he showed great favoritism to his son, Joseph. He loved him more than all his other sons, so much so that he starts to give him gifts that he doesn't give to his other kids. You don't have to have kids to know how that's going to go. That's a disaster waiting to happen. In my house, one of my sons will say, Dad, can you get me a glass of water? And I'll go, yeah, and I'll get him a glass of water and I'll hand it to him. And the next one will say, that's not fair. You didn't get me any water. You go, well, you didn't ask for any. Like, what's the, right? And so you can see how this is going to go already when he's lavishing presents on his one son and he's building him up and he's showing favoritism to him. If you remember, uh, Jacob came by this honestly. It's the same thing that his dad and his mom used to do with he and his brother. We saw that a few weeks ago. This has been sewn into their life. You see him repeating the same mistakes and say not only repeating the same mistakes, but maybe ramping him up. He's doing even more so than his own father did in the same ways. And so you see right there, starting with Jacob, he's sowing a lot of this discord into his own family by the way he treats his kids. Then you turn to Joseph and you get his favorite son, Joseph, the one with this special coat and all these things he's lavishing on his son. And he's a mess, too. On the face, you can read it and it just sounds like he's just kind of a jerk. He's kind of an obnoxious spoiled kid who likes to rub it in his brother's face, right? That's kind of what you get. If you start to read between the lines and look at what's going on, that's what you see. Dad gives him all these gifts and he turns around and kind of sticks it in his brother's face. Normal sibling kind of stuff. But when you read more closely, what you see in verse three is it says he goes out and the flocks with his brother in, I'm sorry, the end of verse two. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. And you can read that and it seems kind of, uh, yeah, he's a tattletale. Right. Like he's telling on him for doing stuff, that kind of thing, that annoying kind of tattletale that does that. Nobody likes the tattletale or I didn't when I was in school. I couldn't stand the tattletale that got you in trouble. But that's the picture. You can kind of get that. But it's actually more sinister than that. If, if you dig into what it's actually saying, a bad report is a slanderous report. He, he's making up things to get his brother in trouble to kind of elevate his own position. And so it's not just that he's telling on him. He's actually using his position of favoritism to really rub his brother's faces in it. And so what you start to get when you look closely at Joseph is not only is he the favorite, not only is he spoiled, not only is he getting more things, he's a liar. 
And he takes advantage of his position to, to harm his brothers. And then you turn to his brothers and you start to see why they hate him. It says three times in the span of verses four, five, and eight, they hated him. And then they hated him more. And then they hated him even more. And they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. They so didn't even want to talk to him. And so you get to this picture and you read this right at the beginning as the generations of Abraham continue. And you go, they are disaster. It's a mess in every way. Broken, sinful people that do all sorts of things and it causes all kinds of strife and problems in their life. And as you go through the story, the, not a spoiler here, but it gets worse. This isn't even the worst part. And so when you read this, you can come to the Bible and you can begin to read stories like this. And you start to go, well, what do we do with this? And I think oftentimes we read the Bible and we read stories like this and we begin to try to break them into small morality tales. Parents don't show favoritism with your kids. It's a disaster. You see it here? That's that's true. We, we could take that away from it. Or, or we say, hey, when your brother, your little brother who's spoiled is a jerk to you, be nice to him anyway. Don't hate him. Right. Sometimes we take the Bible and we kind of twist it to be that. That's what it is. We just make these short little morality tales out of it. But when we do that, we're missing something much bigger that God's doing. See, God doesn't give us the Bible to give us good advice to just add to our lives to try to make us better. The Bible is the story of a great God that loves us despite our sinfulness and our mistakes and who's seeking to break in and is going to do a wonderful work in our lives to change us. See, the hero of the Bible is God and what he's doing in Jesus. It's not us. But we often read it as it's about us. Well, I just will take these things and apply them to my life. But when we do that, we, we miss that we don't just need good advice. We need to be made new. And that's what the whole story of the Bible is about. And so I want us to set this in proper light as we go forward. It's not just some do's and don'ts and let's not be like these people. In fact, I think the stories that we read in the Bible are not there just so we don't act this way. What they do is they show us what we're like. They're a mirror that we go, man, that, that's me. And I'm in desperate need. And that's part of what God's doing in the scriptures is showing us we're in desperate need and we need God to save us. And so as we go forward and as we begin to look at this story, let's make sure we don't miss it. We can easily make them religious, moral tales. Do this and do this and do this and do it to your best of your ability and God will accept you. That's not the gospel. That's not what's at the heart of the Bible. The heart of the Bible is God loves you beyond all measure and you can't even fathom how much he loves you. And he loves you so much that even though you can't do this, he came to do it for you. And the only way that you actually ever change is to see that he loves you so much. That he would do what you could never do for you. And it's by faith through grace. It's the same in the Old Testament. It's the same what God's doing all the way through. And so when we look at this story, I want you to see it like this. This is a story about God's love breaking in because he's so gracious and so loving in the midst of our mess. Because everybody here is a disaster. And so when you look at this story, I want you to think about God being at work in all this mess. And so if you know, there's the, the setup. The brothers hate him. The father's putting favoritism on Joseph. Joseph is a punk. He's kind of deserves the hatred that he gets in some ways. And that's the story. And then it goes forward. 
And so Israel or Jacob sends his son out to check on the other boys, which is a pretty dumb move right there from the beginning. Send them out by himself to check on the guys that hate him. Not a real, real good plan, but he sends them out to check on them. And as they go out to find them, they're not where they're supposed to be. He comes to the place where they were supposed to be. They're not there. They look for him. He's gone. But there's a guy who happens to be there and he says, oh, they're not here. They went over to Dothan, another place. He happened to overhear him. And so Joseph says, thanks. He moves on and he goes to find them where they are. And as he approaches, his brothers see him coming off in the distance and they see him and their hatred is kindled and they go, that's it. Let's let's do away with him. His own brothers, Joseph's own brothers, Israel's sons, Abraham's grandsons decide they're going to kill their own brother. And so they hatch a plan. When he gets here, we're going to kill him. This is it. We're done with it. We've had enough. We're putting him to death. And so as he approaches, he comes up and they've made this plan. They strip him of his coat. They throw him in a pit. Later on, as they retell the story, we hear that he was begging for mercy and crying. And they ignore him. And then Reuben, his brother, steps in and says, we can't kill him. He's our brother. We can't kill him. And so Reuben kind of has, has a heart in this. says, we can't kill him. says, they sit down to eat. You see the, the depths of depravity here? They rip their brother. They tear his clothes off. They throw him in the pit and they sit down to have a sandwich. Right? It sounds humorous, but if you really think about how awful that is, the depths of depravity here, that that's what happens. It tells us that Reuben happened to go off and then a caravan comes by and they go, you know, instead of killing him, Judah says, let's uh, sell him into slavery. We could get some money for him. And so they do. Passers by on their way down to Egypt, they stop and they sell their own brother into slavery. Reuben returns and says, what did you do? They said, oh, we got money for him. We got rid of him and we got paid. And then they take his coat and they say, well, we'll we'll take his coat and we tear it up. They take animal's blood and pour it on it and they take it back to Israel, to Jacob. And they say, your son's dead. We found his coat. He must have been attacked by animals. And the end of the chapter is Israel, Jacob, saying, I'm going to mourn the rest of my days. I'm so gutted that this was my, my favorite son. Whom I loved. And he's completely done over by this. And that's the end of Genesis 37. The beginning of Joseph's story. And that's all we're looking at today. And so you read that and you go. Okay, what? How's God working in this? If you know the rest of the story, you start to connect the dots. But right here in Genesis 37, put yourself in any one of the people, any one of the characters in the story's shoes. It's a disaster. Even if you hated your brother to that degree and you do this and then you bring it home and you tell your dad and there he is mourning over him and then you lay down that night. What's that like? It's a disaster. Every single person here, it's a mess. And so you go, well, how is God working in all of this mess? Well, when you go back and you read the story and you start to look at all the things that happen, you start to see little glimmers. You see little points where despite Their decisions, despite their sinfulness, despite their evil intentions, there's little parts where you just see different things. Circumstances coming into play. Like, for example, we see that Israel sends Joshua out alone. 
all alone and he goes and he goes to where they're supposed to be and they're not there. Right? This would have never happened if he would have just went, well, I didn't find them. I go home. But there's a guy there that just happens to overhear. And he says, no, no, this is where they are. And he points them in the right direction. Or then he gets there in verse 18 and they're ready to kill him. And easily they hatched this plan. He could have walked up. It could have been done. But Reuben steps in and saves his life. He says, no, don't kill him. Or, or shortly after that, Judah decides that, no, we should sell him as a slave. And there just happens to be a group coming by that's going to Egypt. And so they sell him. And so you start to see all these things kind of aligning in the way that despite their sinful intentions, despite the evilness of what they're doing and what they're saying, you see that God's preserving Joseph through this. Now, we know that. And I say we, if you know the rest of the story, you know that, you know, him ending up in Egypt actually pays huge dividends later on. But you don't know that at the moment. And that's what I want you to really try to think about this morning, because there's a lot of times when you're in the middle of the difficult times and situations at the hardest moments that you don't know how God's working. You don't have a clue. Right? You, you get to the end of this chapter and there's no reason to think, oh, God's at work here. It seems the exact opposite of that in every way. But yet you see these little things of what God is doing. And if you look closely, what I want us to think about is how God graciously uses all of this, that he is at work in the mess and the sinful, broken things, that God's big enough to do that. All throughout this story, you see everyone here making decisions and making choices and they're bad. And they're sinful and they're broken and they're self-centered and they're built around favoritism and hatred, rubbing it in the other guy's face. It's all bad stuff. But yet somehow God's still taking those things and working in the midst of it. And so what the Bible tells us that God loves us, that he's so gracious, that he's so great, that he's so sovereign that sometimes even in the midst of our evil and our suffering and our bad decisions and the things we do, that God's still working in those. That he's still using those. We have real choices with real consequences, but that God's big enough to work in those. And you see this repeated in Scripture over and over. Now, you could ask the question, I think it'd be a fair question to ask. God spoke into Jacob more than once. Right? He wrestled with him. He spoke to him. He came to him in a dream. Why didn't he just say, hey, what are you doing? Right? I mean, God has this relationship with Israel, with Jacob. It's his chosen guy. Why didn't he step in and say, what's the deal with the favoritism with your kid? Knock it off. Sometimes we see those things and go, why didn't God just step in and stop that from happening? And if you read through the scripture, sometimes he does. Sometimes in our lives, we start down a road and he brings someone in our life and he circumvents it and he stops it right away. And he saves us from a whole lot of heartache and grief. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it goes further and further down the spiral before it gets better. And that's what you have in this story. There's all kinds of mess here in all these ways in this story. And God works in the midst of that 
His, he's so gracious and so loving and so merciful. I want you to see this, that when we go further and further down and we ignore him and we ignore him and we ignore him and we ignore him, he allows us to feel that. Have you ever thought about that? That the consequences of sin are born out of the fact that God is loving and gracious. It's not that he wants us to go through these really difficult times because of our poor choices. It's not that he wants us to suffer in our sin and those things. But when we ignore him and we continue on, he is gracious enough to allow us to feel that. I say he doesn't want us to go through that. I want you to think about what he says back in Genesis 4. Remember what he said to Cain? When he's so mad at his brother. Again, sibling rivalry, hating his brother. Same kind of thing. And God says to uh, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. It's a desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He tells him, I don't want this for you. You need to recognize this. And he doesn't listen. But I want you to think about the way God allows us to do that. Sometimes to get to the bottom of it, he has to let us feel that pressure. Sometimes to get our attention to wake us up, that's the way it works. You know, in Romans 8, Paul says that God has subjected creation to futility in hope. Have you ever thought about that phrase? That God is the one that allows as sin enters the world for there to be consequences with that sin. He has subjected creation to futility in hope. But the picture that's there is that because he's loving, because he's good, when we go against the way the world's made, him being the sinner, loving him and loving other people, when we don't do that, there's consequences that come with that. That that in and of itself is God's grace. That he allows us to feel that. There's a great quote in your bulletin this morning from C.S. Lewis. I always joke, you can always find a great C.S. Lewis quote. He said so many profound things, but the way he says it here, we can ignore God even in our pleasure. But pain assists, insists upon being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so God allows us to feel the pain of our sin. Sometimes we feel the pain of sin that's not even our own. But God uses those things to draw us back to him because he loves us. Because he's gracious, because he's kind. And so you get in this into this story and you begin to look at all the mess that's here. And God's going to have to allow all of the people involved here to begin to feel the depths of their sin. He's getting their attention. He's using these things in different ways. They're so far into this that he begins to do so to to bring them back. And he will. And we see that played out in the story. But right now in the midst of it, they don't feel that. So I want you to think about how hard that is. Can you imagine as a loving father allowing your kids to go through hard things so that they learn? 
That's what God does for us. It's like when you tell your kids, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. I've done that with the boys over and over. Don't try to pick that up. It's too heavy. You're going to drop it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. I turn around and then there it is falling on them. Right? You don't ever take pleasure in them getting hurt. But you go, you see why I told you that? And that's us as broken, sinful people doing that. But God's perfect in every way. And so he will allow us to feel the consequences as they come into our life for our sin. Had the great privilege the last seven, eight years to get to work with Jericho House. With Larry McKenna and his love for guys going through the depths of addiction and frustrations that go with that. And I've heard Larry say the same thing. and I've heard this. I've heard and seen the same story repeated over and over. Guys will say I was at this point and it wasn't until I hit the bottom that I really began to seek help. That I that I had 20 starts and stops and false starts over and over because I hadn't gotten to that point yet. That God had to bring you to a place of, okay, I can't do this. And this doesn't work. And it's not working any other way. Or or there's guys that come into the program and they're there for two weeks and they leave. And Larry would say to me, they haven't hit bottom yet. They haven't recognized their need to this point. Or, Or sometimes we come in and we begin to think that I just need some good advice to add to my life. The way I warned you at the beginning that we don't look at this story, the same thing happens. I'll go in and someone who's sober will give me some, some keys and some good advice and I'll add them to my life and then I'll be good. That didn't work. It's not until we get to the place of saying that I can't do this. I desperately need God to break in and to save me. It's what all these stories are saying over and over and over again. That God is so loving and he's so gracious that when we ignore him and we continue to run and we continue, he allows these things to come. And it's precisely because he loves us that he does so. So I'm not going to let you live that way. I'm going to box you in and I'm going to show you and I'm going to teach you and I'm going to reveal these things to you. And I'm going to show you that you need me to save you. And that's what he does over and over and over again. You get to the end of the story and none of that's happened yet. And I realize we get to the end of the story and you go, this is kind of a bummer. Sometimes you're just sitting right in the middle of it and it's really hard. And it's really difficult. And so I want you just to think as we wrap up, as we kind of end here, that God's using all of this. Scripture tells us that God will graciously use all of it in in your life. If you know him and you love him, he's going to use every bit of it. He's going to redeem it all. But the honest truth is there's going to be a lot of days you don't see how and you don't feel it. And you don't know how that's going to work. And you're going to be frustrated and you're going to struggle with it. And so there's two things I want you to consider. One, if you read this story and as you go through and you kind of identify with Joseph's brothers. Maybe right now there's really difficult things in your life and you know clearly it's because you're ignoring God. I'm willing to bet that when those guys went home that night and they laid down, nobody slept soundly. Nobody was like, whew, we got rid of the problem. 
the guilt and shame and frustration and everything else came flooding in. And I guarantee you they were miserable. And if you identify with that today, that's where you are. You go, I see things that God clearly calls me to and I'm just ignoring them. I say to you, repent and believe that God loves you, that he meets you in the middle of that and he takes all of it. He says, give it to me. That's why Jesus came. That's why every story points to the fullness of who Christ is and what he did. Over and over, the Bible tells us, repent and believe. Turn from your sin and throw yourself into his arms. And here's the good news. He says, finally, I've got you and I love you and I will take all of it and I will deal with it. Now, the truth is, that doesn't mean that it all goes away. There's still consequences to our sin. There's times when it's still hard and it's still difficult and it takes a long time. But God says, I will redeem all of it. And so if that's where you are, turn to him today and find forgiveness. He will meet you right where you are. But the second part is you may be in the midst of a really difficult time or a frustrating thing and you see all of it and you can't pinpoint something in your life. It doesn't, it's not a, a playing out of your own sin. Maybe it's the sin of others. Maybe it's the struggles of everything that's going on. Maybe it's a whole bunch of things. To be honest, most of the time it is we're all sinful. We're all broken. But it's maybe a, a mixture of all these different things. But it's not a just I need to repent and turn from this. It's just hard. And the good news of the gospel, the good news that we read all the way through this book is that God knows exactly what you're going through. He's not far off. He's not uninvolved. He's not uncaring. We worship the God that came down and entered in and knows exactly what you're going through. We see in this story where Joseph suffers because his brothers hate him. And they strip him and they throw him in a pit and they leave him there and they sell him into slavery. In a lot of ways, Joseph's life is just pointing us ahead to exactly what's going to happen when Jesus comes. Jesus comes and they strip him and they beat him and they nail him to a cross and they call, say, blasphemy. We just sang it this morning. Pilate says, you think you're a king. And the soldiers mock him. And the religious leaders yell blasphemy. And Jesus saves us from our sin. And so if you're in the midst of it, the good news is that not only is he going to redeem all of it, but he knows exactly where you are right now. And you can trust him in that. So turn and look at him. The hero of the story. What God's doing is it's all about that he is faithful even when we're not. Thankfully. It's a good way to wrap it up. We're done, Ella. <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> I love that she asked like 10 minutes ago. Are we almost done? It's a good reminder. But the good news is that it all comes back to Jesus and who he is. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious truth that you meet us in the midst of our suffering. 
that you are never far off. That even when we're running from you, even when we're struggling, when we're rebelling, when we're going against those things and we're feeling the weight of it, that you are at work. That you love us so much that you allow us to feel those things, that you still pursue us. And all we can say is thank you. We thank you that you stand there continually with open arms welcoming us in, giving us grace and mercy completely and totally by what Jesus has done and nothing else. We thank you, thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.